Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Today, I have the honor of talking with Tara Nicole Nelson. And here is her official bio. Tara Nicole Nelson is the author of The Transformational Consumer, Fuel a Lifelong Love Affair with Customers by Helping Them Get Healthier, Wealthier, and Wiser, and creator of the 30-Day Writing Challenge for Conscious Leaders. Tara is an entrepreneur in residence with Lightspeed Venture Partners and the founder and CEO of a startup called Soul Tour, a technology and media platform for upliftment and spiritual well-being. Tara is the former VP, marketing for MyFitnessPal and under Armour Connected Fitness. Am I saying that correctly? Under yeah, Under Armour. Armour. <laughs> under Armour Connected Fitness. She's been featured in Harvard Business Review, Essence, and the New York Times, and was recently named the number one woman Silicon Valley tech companies should be naming to their boards by Business Insider. So Tara Nicole is someone who I have known for almost 13, maybe even 14, 15 years. I met her in Berkeley, Oakland, in the Bay Area of California so long ago. I don't know if she took one of my very first conscious bookkeeping courses and that's how I met her or if it was because of the book that she wrote about real estate. She was in real estate at the time and she had written a book about women buying their own homes that I refer to over and over and over. I know she's also a mama. I think her boys are grown at this time so she can share yes, a little about are. that. Yeah, I think she was a single mom at some point for a little stretch or a longer one. Yes. And she's navigated quite a few career changes that have been so inspiring to me. So, Tara Nicole, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's exciting <laughs> to be here. And I do think, I do think I took your, I know I took your conscious bookkeeping course when you were teaching it, like, way back when in Berkeley. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we were just reminiscing a little bit before we started that I don't think we've actually connected since I moved back to Boulder when I was pregnant, which was 10 years ago because I have a nine-year-old. Yes. and But I'm remembering a dinner in Oakland years ago. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. So we yes, broke yes. bread together. And well, what's funny is I was thinking, yeah, way back then when I was broke. <laughs> so I love that you use the word broke bread. <laughs> right. Right. See, I didn't know that, that you were broke. I knew that you were in real estate and doing yeah. well. And then I know that there was a whole well, crash yes. in then, real estate. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I call it the not-so-great recession because, <laughs> yes. you know, in the news they call it the great recession. And I'm like, I, mm. if you were in real estate in 2008 making a living doing that, it was not so great. Mm. Yeah. We're probably going to talk about that today if you're yeah. open to yeah. it. Okay? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let's start out by you sharing a snapshot of your family, work, life right now, and then – We'll dive deeper into some of your own money memoir stories. All right. So let's – there is so much. There is so much. There is so much. Um, I – and every day for me is very different. It's a need I have. I have, I, have a, I have a deep psychological need to have a lot of variety and a lot of creative freedom in my work. So every day looks kind of different. Um, let's start with family. So my my children are no longer little boys. They are now 20 – one is – one is about to turn 26 mm. next week. Yes, one turns 26 next week and one turns 25 on New Year's Day. Okay. Um, my 25-year-old, and I haven't really even said this publicly on social media yet, but will have by the time um, this comes out, my 25-year-old just had his first, his first child. So I am You're now officially... Grandma. Oh I am God. now officially the sexiest grandmother on the planet. So that's, <laughs> that's like, love it. like oh, in I human history. I'm just owning that. Very um, I good. did have my, my son when I was very young, so I was 17 when I had him. I'm 42 now. Um, let's see. In my work, um, you know, generally when people ask me what I do for a living, I say something like, you know, I'm a marketer and an entrepreneur, and I only work on transformational businesses. I only work on companies whose sort of products or brands help people live healthier, wealthier, or wiser lives. And I have had the great blessing to work since most of all of this has happened since I last saw you on some of the biggest sort of media and real estate and health and fitness brands in the world. Um, but uh, maybe about 18 months ago, after my last company was acquired by Under Armour, and I spent some time really, you know, writing the book and, and sitting with what I wanted my life to be about, I sort of realized that all of those jobs, including from real estate, from when I was a lawyer before that, all of my tech marketing and um, consumer marketing jobs, had sort of been like a, a way in which I was trying to use those brands to secretly answer people's deeper level SOS cries. <laughs> mm. um, so it was kind of like, oh, you want to lose weight? Great. So I'm going to, you know, market this weight loss app for you, but then slip you all these messages about how deeply worthy you are, uh, you know, what kind of being you are. You are love. All of these, you know, about messages about radical self-acceptance. I would always, like, inject that stuff deeply to kind of hide it <laughs> in our marketing campaigns. So when I was taking my time off, I was approached by Lightspeed Venture Partners, which was they were the original venture capital investors in Snapchat, um, and they basically were asking me if I wanted to if I wanted to start a Christian app because I am well known around here as 
the sexy black church lady in Silicon Valley. <laughs> okay. um, and what I told them was, you know, I didn't want to start a Christian app, but I am interested in building a technology platform and content platform for spiritual well-being in general, for upliftment in general. And I really, you know, I'm now creating this company that's on a mission to connect a whole new generation of spiritual seekers with the transformational teachers and experiences and communities that they need along their journey. So my days right now look like launching that business, everything from concepting what our original sort of online and broadcast video shows will look like to talking to celebrity teachers and influencers that we want to be on the platform to filming videos myself um, to running this I, I run this 30-day writing challenge that is now a big user acquisition um, funnel essentially for the rest of my business so getting on Facebook and inter engaging with people who are unlocking all this transformation every day by writing to my prompts. Um, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of meeting with investors in, in Silicon Valley, um, a lot of relationship building and creating, and then just running, you know, running the, the early stages of this business. So everything from cash flow projections to org chart creation to, you know, sketching out the big picture vision and the granular action plans. Um, that's kind of, and then, you know, I, I maintain a very um, life-giving set of spiritual practices myself, so I tend to be relatively, um, I'm very committed to that. So I kind of get up in the day and have a, in a relatively long spiritual practice morning routine and physical well-being morning routine. Um, and then I have a lot of fun the rest of the time. I dance a lot. I go to church a lot. I um, speak a lot. I travel a lot. Um, and I hot tub a lot. <laughs> mm. Um, so those, that's kind of the flavor of my life. I have a very dear beloved partner, a life partner who is, um, just like joyous and life giving and supportive. And, you know, we entertain a lot. So those are the kinds of things that make up my life. I've seen you too on Facebook. I've seen the connection, the energy, just from photos, but it's so yeah. very clear that it's a wonderful partnership, a wonderful it meeting. Is joyous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wonderful. Joyous. I love it. I church a lot. I do spiritual practice a lot. <laughs> I entertain yep. a lot. I hack yep. up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I do I hug it. a lot too. I can't believe I didn't mention the girls. Yeah, I mentioned the boys, but I have two pugs um, that are, you know, definitely the center of everyone's world around here. So I also mm. pug a lot. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Okay, so your boys are grown. You are now officially the sexiest grandma <laughs> alive. And um, amazing, amazing. You were the opposite of me. You know, I have some girlfriends. I had my son at 40, and I have girlfriends at late teens or early 20s had their kids. You know, it's the It's really fascinating. Opposite. Someone said to me the other day, like, you know, so I still live in the Bay Area. Someone said to me the other day, you know, you are the age now of the average first-time mother in Marin <laughs> County across the Bay. And True. I thought, that's crazy because, like, wow. <laughs> Um, and I think there are pros and cons, actually, all of oh, yeah. you know, to all of the different ways. But. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, pros and cons. I can see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Wonderful. So, you know, I, there's a lot I didn't know. None of this surprises me. Um, but, yeah, I've just watched you over the last decade um, move into all these other fields. Um, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to see from afar. Yeah, and I just did not know the details of it. So, yeah. amazing, amazing, Tara. Do you like to go by Tara? Do you like to go by Tara yes. Nicole? No, Tara is perfect. Tara is fine. Okay, so let's segue into some of your money story, and we're, we'll definitely segue back into work. And I want to certainly hit upon what you didn't—you called it the opposite of the Great Recession, the most awful recession. What did you say? I called it the not so great recession. The not so great. <laughs> the not so great. We'll get there because um, I want to hear yeah. about that because that yeah. was a huge. That was a huge transition. Yeah. Um, and, and how you overcame that and how you got through it. So let's let's begin. Let's begin, which is, you know, what are some of the main emotions that come up for you around money? And I imagine they're different now than what they were five or ten years ago or even 20 years ago. So please feel free to share a story or two from what they were and yes. what they are now, the cocktail, the combination of emotions that come up for you. Fascinating. Um, okay, so... I definitely, my my emotional sort of reaction or like word association emotions that used to come up around money would, I would say, were like constriction, mm-hmm. um, a scarcity is not even quite the right, constriction is probably more the right connotation than like scarcity, um, but also maybe like with a little bit of like tyranny <laughs> to it. Mm-hmm. I felt very tyrannized um, and like a little bit on a hamster wheel about money. I also think I felt just a lot of hmm, uh, like just pressured. Mm-hmm. Pressured. And a little in that constriction and in that there was a general feeling like there could be a catastrophe around the corner and like it was my job to be and because I wasn't sure that I could make it survive right like the catastrophe might actually do me in if it were to happen um so that that caused a lot of me just like really avoiding okay. money matters mm-hmm. in a way that led me to say my approach to money um, is I just make a lot of it. I just okay. make enough of it that I never really have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I never, you know, I never really want to have to pay attention. So okay. to stay, to outpace that, looming potential catastrophe, I will just try to make a lot of money. <laughs> okay. um, and that so worked did, for a while. Yeah. And that, that that is a type. It's even an archetype, even though I don't use archetypes. Some some other money yes. teachers do. That is, I would say, one of the boxes or one of the areas. Make as much money as you can. You're a high earner. Yes. You know how to bring in yes. revenue and income. You know, you, you're good at that, really good. Um, yes. And then we're not going to look at anything else, and we're going to outpace any issues, you know, we're just going to make as much as we can. 
and not look at anything or not direct it at all. Yeah. There, I think that with the two, my two early uh, career choices, right? I was a, a billing attorney and then I was a real estate broker. Both of those careers. So you know, you talk a lot about how like your early life um, and your family's approach to money, like wires you a certain way for money, which it definitely does. And then I think some of your early formative experiences, remembering that I was a lawyer when I was like 20 years old, uh, 22 okay. years old. Um, and then I probably left to go into real estate when I was 25. Um, so still very young, <laughs> very young. Um, both of those uh, careers, I think, created a little bit of off emotional wiring, or like, let's just say less than healthy emotional mm-hmm. wiring around money. So in real estate, you get the wiring that, hey, like, yes, you're a hot, or in, I'm sorry, in the law, you get the wiring that, yes, you can make a lot of money but your money is very, very time-blocked, right? So every moment of your – in California, billing attorneys have to bill their time with accuracy to the tenth of an hour. Okay. So, like, every six minutes of your time is very clearly in your mind representing an increment of dollars. And that is not necessarily healthy. (laughs) Yeah. Like it really yeah. changes. I used to think of like when my kid would talk to me and it, you know how little kids are, they're like, um, mom, um, you know, and I would be like, gosh, that was like $75 worth of time right there mm-hmm. that she just was saying, um, it's really dysfunctional wiring, which is why I think that model is actually in some ways breaking down and, and people are looking at new ways of legal services work. Um, as a real estate broker at the top of the market, you get into this thing where, hey, you may make no money this month or next month or the next month, but if you close two or three deals the next month, you might actually make like $100,000. Yep. And so you get into In a windfall. Where In a windfall. You know, just always a, win. a windfall. Yeah. Yep. Always a windfall. It feels – there are some real estate brokers who I think have taken their businesses very seriously and over the long run have eliminated moved out some of that feeling of feast or famine, but I definitely, and many salespeople of all types actually, experience that like feast or famine, but also that kind of like, I know, you know, in a couple months I'll have, if I just keep doing what I'm doing in a couple months, I'll have a windfall until the market breaks, right? And you don't. Because then you're working just as hard and maybe even selling just as many houses, but they're worth half as much, so you just don't make the same commission. Um, But you have all the same bills, right? So, like, that's the situation in which your, my um, disinclination (laughs) to look at the details and pay attention really to, like, in and out really became painful. Okay. Uh, around the recession for that reason. Now, my emotions around money now, I still have that, ah, um, oh, it's so funny. Like, I am feeling, like, trippy, like, expansive right this moment as in my body as I'm talking about this. Um, now it also feels like everything, it's, I, I have a great emotion of possibility and expansion around money now. But I have much, um, it does, it just, there's not that uh, dread of paying attention to the granular aspects anymore. Okay. 
it's not like I love doing it. It just is like a thing I do, like brushing my teeth or working out. Um, so what changed? What changed? Well, the catastrophe happened. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I survived. I did not die. Yep. Um, in fact, I learned over the years to follow that I I developed a very strong belief system that, like, the creator of the universe is actually watching out for me <laughs> um, and that I can't, I can't even make wrong moves or decisions because all of them get me closer to who I really am and clarity about why I'm really here. Um, so I know I have my, my emotional capacity to deal with everything in life has expanded dramatically since then, mm -hmm. including finance. And okay. my view on the world has shifted, including finance. And I, um, I attribute a lot of that, the bigness of that shift to having been through that deep, deep crisis and trauma and transition around that time. Which was also the time I, I got divorced. So I oh, am okay. also the time, like, I had okay. a whole, you know, moment okay. there that was really intense. Okay. Wow. I have so many questions. I have three different big threads. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is more simple and short, which is, you know, as entrepreneurs, on some level, I mean, it's changing, it's changing with our government and what's been going on yeah. in our political system. But there's been always a sense that, you know, we're not affected by our government. We're not affected by our economy. It doesn't affect us. We can create yeah. whatever we want, right? And yep. you had a direct experience that, yes, you can create, you can make more money, you can do well, so much possibility, so much creation, right? And right. there was a real live market crash, that had there an was. impact on you. And Indeed. Yeah. It also, so, yeah, that's what? so real, but I don't, I, I do not, I did not walk away from that with a change in my belief system about what I can create, except probably some level of expansion to that. I did walk away from it going, you know, you can create X, but if you're not paying attention at all to what you're spending, it doesn't, there is no amount of money you will make in the world where you should, where it's okay or helpful or a conscious way of living to not be paying attention to what's going out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there is no amount. And that was, I think, what I had thought before is like, I can create everything. And if I do create all this money, it won't matter how much I'm spending. But okay. that's never, there's never a dollar amount at which that's true. Mm -hmm. And it's also just like not even a conscious, well way of being in the world on in, any, on any aspect of life. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and I still don't get really worked up about what the government does. Okay. <laughs> I still okay. don't. I'm like, I mm -hmm. actually, yeah. Um, I even, you know, my CPA called me the other day and was like, I'm just calling everybody because tax, you know, tax will pass and everybody's stressed out. And I'm like, yeah, I don't stress out about that stuff. I, I don't stress about much actually, but I certainly don't stress about things that I cannot control. Right. Um, I, I cast my vote. I do the conscious thing. And then I like 
work I work on the things that I can control because I don't think that I can be useful in the world creating for myself or creating for any of the people that I aim to serve if I'm like paralyzed with fear and distress at the headlines twitching under the desk, which does happen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I focus on the things I can control, but I also, you know, I like pay attention to what I spend. <laughs> I um, I don't feel a scarcity or like um, it's it's odd in some ways that I actually felt more fear and dread and and tightness constriction around money before the recession than I do after. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. but once you have the, you know, the catastrophe hit and you make it through it, you know, I came through with like an expanded sense of capacity and also just an expanded understanding in like the well-being of this universe that we live in and, um, a belief about that. So your spiritual connection deepened, um, through it, your resilience deepened and you didn't die and you made it through. And you kept going, right? And so, and you've had the live experience of having a market crash, I, having the real estate market having crash. a market crash, losing losing literally basically everything I had, and having children in that, you know, teenagers. Context. You had teenagers, right? Or or they pre-teens. were probably early teenagers, yeah, yeah. Like preteens and early teenagers. And my career story was such that. The recession created also some real opportunities that ended up shifting the entire trajectory of my career and my life. Okay. Including, like, I started doing spokesperson work with HGTV. I got, then I was, I, um, Trulia.com, which is a real estate search engine, recruited me away from doing HGTV work to come in-house and work as a marketing, running their marketing and content and PR campaigns. And, like, I never would have done that, made that move before the recession. I was making okay. too much money selling real estate. When Truly offered me that job, they said, you have to come in-house and you can't compete with our customers, right? So you've got to quit selling real estate and come in-house. And it was less money than I had made in real estate, but it was steady money. It was yes. a steady place for me to, like, get my bearings, okay. you know, to recover. And that literally shifted the entire course of my career in an incredible a way I never, like, I would never undo it, as painful as it was. So um, you plan so much. We can plan so much. Life also happens. And, you know, things fell apart. And I hear it was really hard and challenging and painful. Um, and you made it through, you know, and opened up to new things that you never, ever could have imagined or thought yourself doing. Um, Never. Okay, because things fell apart. So, right, we we hold on so much to things or we're so afraid of things falling apart. But life happens and it gets all of us, right? There's, I don't know anyone who gets through a long life, if we have the honor, without some of these moments. You know, whether we want to call them crisis moments, things falling apart, things dying, things blowing up, right? So uh, two more threads. life. It's life, right? It's life. Yeah. Yeah. So two more threads. Um, one is that I think you just answered this question, 
which was you went from being a billable attorney. You said in every six-minute six increments, and I heard another attorney recently say they build in every seven-minute increments, same thing, <laughs> you know, crazy. Um, Too and small, it's so, regardless. It's, yeah, it's so inefficient. It's not it, – yeah. it, it's not – yeah, anyway, um, productive at all, really. And um, that model needs to change, right? It needs to change. So you are in yeah. that model. And then you moved into the windfall model, right, being able to take an enormous amount. And in any work we do, there's, well, when you work for yourself, there's business models and there's cash flow models, right? And we're always adjusting, always updating, fine-tuning. And we all are trying to get to whatever that means. I mean, I, in the past, was looking for something more sustainable. My, My business models that I was working with are so different than yours. It was with a master's degree in psychology, making $11 an hour, you know, working in the mental health field, you know, how can I break through that? You know, but that's what I was dealing with. Or it was, how do I make more than this an hour? Or can I make money for three months instead of just one month? Or, and so on, right? Um, Those were some of the things. So these were some of the models that you were experiencing. They had their pros and cons. I think you've already answered it in the sense that things – the market crashed, things fell apart, then you were offered these new things, and you were offered a stable salary that wasn't as much, but was stable for a period yeah. of time in this recovery mode. Were you very interested? Go ahead. Sometimes yeah. you need that. Yeah. yeah. Did it feel like a balancer to these other models, or, you know? It, oh, it, um, it's so funny because to me, money has gotten to be just it is just another element of the way I look at the whole world. So it's almost hard to separate out whether having just a regular salary was the balancer or whether having a regular salary with a nine to five office that I went to and saw the same people every day and could have that regularity at a time when the rest of my life was really like, pulling apart and being rewritten. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say which part of that was balancing, probably all of it. It was a very regulating um, reset time in my life. Um, noteworthy that I know I do not, well, I guess I do currently have a salary, <laughs> but I don't usually. Okay. Um, um, I had certainly, you know, I'm very comfortable and since then have tended to go back and forth into and out of in-house roles that are salaried and then consulting, in-house roles that are salaried then consulting, and I'm comfortable now with making those shifts. Um, But that definitely was a time in my life where that role and having that steady income was very helpful. And I mean, I like, I had a thing where I had had a couple of, I'd had a couple of lawyers say I should declare bankruptcy. And something about that just did not feel spiritually right for me, um, probably because so much of my spiritual practice is around declaration. <laughs> and I declaration? was like, no, I declare. Yeah, declaration? Like, de- yeah, making declarations for what I want to be and what I think I am and what I want my life to be. Um, it's, you know, it's like 
similar to affirmations, right? But I mm-hmm. literally would call them and think of them as my declarations. So when they said, like, you should declare bankruptcy, I was like, no, I declare mm-hmm. prosperity. I declare prosperity. And I literally had this moment in time when I was in, like, Trulia and then after at a couple of salaried roles where I just stopped everything. I, like, I... I stopped, I would not declare bankruptcy. I stopped paying some bills. I got on the phone with every one of my creditors and I just like actually negotiated settlements. I like figured it out. I paid off literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I just like dove into it and like reset the whole thing. And in some ways not being on that, I don't, I could make a lot of money soon, but I don't know windfall model was very helpful at, like, just resetting everything. Um, mm. Yeah. You know, this is a really powerful moment um, because words are so important. I hear they're so meaningful for you. Yes. And to go from making declarations to being offered to declare bankruptcy and you saying, yeah. nope, I need to reframe that. That's not what I'm declaring. I'm declaring prosperity. And yeah. then committed to getting on the phone. I'm actually remembering this um, from years ago. Uh, yeah. We were in a little bit of contact around this, and I think I knew that you were going up to bat and negotiating yeah. by yourself. Did you have someone helping you? Did you know what I did do? not, because every lawyer I called was like, just declare bankruptcy. It's so much okay. easier. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I cannot, I don't even I think that there are so many people for whom that at that time was probably the right thing to do. So this is like not even at all from a place of judgment or shame about it. I just personally was like, I cannot declare bankruptcy. I must declare prosperity. This is what that looks like. I made these obligations. I had, I could afford them when I made them. I cannot afford to do them all the way now, but I will get on the phone with these people and just like, I mean, I went back and forth and back and forth with some of them. I wrote letters. I did. And every one, eventually, I paid off the second mortgage on a house I no longer owned, but in settlement because I had I had made that commitment and it was important to me to do that. Um, and even the bank people would be like, you, you know, <laughs> this loan is now unsecured. Like, you no longer own this home. You don't, like, we can't come after you for it. But it was important for me as part of my internal and external declarations of prosperity to actually, like, get to a place where they were settled and clear, where I didn't have to think about them. They were actually done. And so I did. It took, it probably took, it probably took two years. Okay. That's not that long. With, it's that's really not. It know. felt long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It felt yeah. long. But in retrospect, it feels like a moment. Okay. So that's really important for people to hear, you know, an incredibly arduous journey of two years now in retrospect just feels like a moment, a blip, feels you like know, a but moment. two years every day staying committed to that declaration when everyone else, when so many people around you are saying, hey, you can let this go, or we've chosen this other, I mean, so many people, even Dave Ramsey, who, you know, is like the king of the no debt movement, he was in real estate and the market crashed and he declared bankruptcy and now he teaches people to never, ever, ever have debt because for him it was so painful. Obviously, I I don't know him personally, right. but he said in interviews it was so painful, humiliating to declare bankruptcy that he 
never wants to be in debt again. And that's why his whole methodology was created around that. And I think yeah. that can be used in intentional yeah. and unintentional ways. And I don't, I'm not on the no debt band, bandwagon, but that's, you know, that was one scenario of how someone went through that. And you are over there with your two years of I'm doing this. I'm, yes. and you stood up. And, and, and years yeah. since then, I mean, that was probably, I think I came out, uh, I think that was, I was probably done with that process in around 2010. So it's been some years since then. It's been some lifetime <laughs> since yeah. then. Um, but I, you know, I, I, there's something that I want to react to that you just said about Dave Ramsey's approach. And I like, I, I know many, many people who have found his work to be really, um, uh, important in their lives and their own yes. prosperity approaches. I I think it's I, I have taken I take great caution to not um, I take great caution to not create touchy new touchy subjects <laughs> new trauma triggers um, need other in otherwise. I might describe them as like knee-jerk reactions to like because this thing happened then, mm -hmm. I won't ever use that yes. use that again or do that now. I think yes. that's a little that is not part of my approach to the world mm -hmm. um, because I think like I at every one every time you go through an experience like that, you if you are watching and paying attention, you're actually developing. So, so much more capacity. And like, I know that my capacity and my discretion and my judgment and my ability to have hard conversations and make hard decisions and look unflinchingly at things that I might not like and pull through them, it is a different, I'm a different being in those ways now than I was then. Hmm. So like, like, I have a credit card that I use to get points. I just paid for our part of our all of our hotel for the, the two weeks of Christmas in points. Um, I pay it off every year, every month. Um, it's just set up on an auto pay to get paid every month. Um, so I like for a couple years after that, I still did not use credit at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but like I, I'm just a different person now, and I'm older and wiser and I make better decisions now than I did then and so I don't have that like knee-jerk sort of or fear I guess of using the instrument debt is not debt is like Facebook to me debt is like yep. Facebook it is a yeah. <laughs> terrible 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 master but it's a wonderful servant mm. you know what I'm saying <laughs> like mm. you just have to be awake and aware and mature in the way that you're using it mm. Beautiful. Love it. That's the quote. Yeah. That's the quote of the interview. That's the quote right <laughs> That's there. That's the quote <laughs> right there. Love it. So, yeah, we're going to – I want to talk about, you know, you and marriage and divorce and single mom and now partnered again. But before we get there, that, that was my third thread from your story. But I, I want to go back a little bit further. And I'd love it if you were willing to share a bit about your family of origin and yeah. what money stories you learned um, what money patterns, positive or negative, and if you feel your lineage and ethnicity have yeah. played a role or shaped your money story as well, and please share anything in there. Yeah. Girl, 
Okay, let's do this. Um, okay. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Where do we begin? Um, I am African-American, also known as black. I just say black. I know that's possibly not the most politically correct thing to say, but that's what we, I say. Um, I grew up in a two-parent household until I was a teenager when my parents got divorced. Um, my parents are people I would describe as extremely ambitious or like extremely upwardly mobile, um, came from very poor families um, and were very, very concerned with, um, and, and I grew up in a town that was very, was and still is now very racially um, tense in, in California, but in a place that was um, very racially tense. So I've described the way that I think my parents felt about race and money intersections before as this. It was as though they thought it was, it's okay to be black. It is not okay to be black and poor. So um, my parents were, uh, my father was very concerned with making sure I had like the education to, um, my father made a good living um, between both real estate investing and a, and a salary day job at the phone company. But he always, always, always felt like his employers were, he hated his job. Uh, that is not an overstatement. He hated his job. And he felt trapped in it because he made enough money to send us both to private school and live in a great house and, you know, drive new cars every two years and all of these things. So he hated work, felt very trapped by it, and was very, always felt smarter, always felt like his intelligence was underappreciated at work. And that was not going to be a thing that happened to me. <laughs> so he was very focused on giving me a private school education and making sure that it was, you know, my intellect. I, I did not have to have that situation. My mother is the sort of... Uh, beauty, you know, aesthetic appreciator of the family. So my mother thinks that you're poor. And Ooh, I think you just cut out. For, hold on, Tara, you just cut out for one second. So I, I heard that? you say, that's okay. I, that's okay. I heard you say that your mother was the beauty aesthetic appreciator of the yeah. family. Yeah. And she really was very concerned with appearances. Okay. Um, so she never wanted people to, we were not poor, but she really wanted people to never think we were poor. And we went to an all-white school. My brother and I were the only black kids from, like, kindergarten to eighth grade at the same school. Um, and so the things that were important were, like, making sure you didn't repeat your outfit. Hmm. Um, you know, and things that, like, since then have come to seem relatively um, superficial to me, but I know we're intertwined with her probably childhood trauma around having been a poor black kid. Yeah. Um, so I, what I see, uh, so um, there are still things that I do. I don't know why. Maybe when I'm 80, I will stop doing it. But there are still things that I do that I think I do secretly deep down to offend my mother's sense of propriety around these things. 
like. I will buy eight of the same, you know, top. In different colors? And wear it. Yeah, in different, some yeah. in different colors, sometimes not. But she's just like, people will think you're wearing the same thing over and over. And I'm like, let them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't care what they think. Um, we're still all rebelling against our moms, maybe like 5%. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I have, I definitely think that those things, you know, I, I grew up and learned math really young because I was helping my dad plan for retirement and run investment scenarios on the real estate, on the buildings and houses and fixers and, you know, duplexes and fourplexes he was building or rehabbing. Um, there was a lot of orientation on future versus present around money. And there was a lot of, like, there was an insatiability um, about it, too, that was a little bit, that felt tedious to me. So, like, there's kind of never enough. It's always in the future that you'll have enough. Um, and I think some of that may have contributed to my disinterest in paying attention to money details, right? That whole idea that, like, if I just made enough now, I wouldn't have to, um, you know, pay attention to what I was spending so much. Yep. So I definitely, you know, see influences and rebellions <laughs> against, mm -hmm. you know, both my parents' point of views around money. I did have a really intense, um, I'll see if I can say this relatively quickly. I had a really intense experience with my mother around money a few years ago, um, where I, I actually developed a concern that she was running out of money. Um, and she spends a lot and likes nice things and doesn't plan a lot. And I was sort of, I was, I was talking about it to a relative. And what I said was, um, she, she spends like there's no tomorrow. Um, and in that moment, I realized my mother, my mother has had six brothers. One is, only one is alive, and my mother is the oldest any of them have gotten to be. She's only 66. None of the rest of them live to 60. Um, so I had this moment where I realized my mother didn't think she would be alive this long. Yeah. yeah. She has never known, no one in her family ever has been, so she really never had that. <laughs> like, my father had this extreme future planning orientation where I'm right now trying to convince him to, like, enjoy his life. And my mother did not actually realize she would still be here. Um, and she's yeah. well. <laughs> so, yeah. like, um, it's, it's, that stuff is all wrapped up in some of the, you know, multi-generational trauma of slavery and scarcity and people as assets and all of these other things that, like, a black, that black America has as, you know, extraordinary um, legacies of our history and this culture. So, yeah, that's, it's all, it's deep. Mm. That stuff is deep. And, yeah. um, and, and is also, what is also deep, I think, is our understanding and reliance on a realm beyond that that we see for provision and protection. So that's also been like, I guess that's the flip side of being a black American, <laughs> um, 
is that, you know, we also have sort of a spiritual lineage that is based on, like, you know, trust and tapping into resources beyond what we can see here. So that's, there's, there's pro mm-hmm. and con. Beautiful. So the the challenge and the beauty. So yes. many sides to the lineage, and I so honor and appreciate how you're going back to your parents and then going further, you know, to really yes. see if you can understand where it came from from them and their generation and going back a few generations or even further, um, to, you know, to see where some of this comes from. And they polarize like so many couples do. I'm, I'm sure there were things that they – patterns that they shared but your father is so future thinking and your mother didn't even know yes. there would be a tomorrow you know yes didn't even believe that um uh-huh. they're so different and in how they're approaching and she's doing it she's surpassing everyone she's living beyond what's ever happened in her lineage yeah 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 and that's major i don't think it i is. mean that is um not to be underestimated that it, that changes the way you look at all of life when you think you know you get you get six you get maybe sixty go <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and then you hit sixty one and three and sixty five and you're like whoa wait I don't have a plan for this on any level and I also love hearing in your lineage and. And black American lineage, the spiritual lineage, the spiritual traditions of the deep trust, of finding resources when they don't seem to be there, you know, and the resilience and all of that, yeah. Hmm. And so your combination of all of that and have rebelled a bit by, oh, my God, buying the same shirt, you know. I know, I know. Because <laughs> you might be more of a uniform kind of dresser than a every day a different outfit. But it's a different I, type Well, I am, dresser. but I think that's yeah. why. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right, is it all rebellion, or is it just this is more your nature, more your way, and it's different, you know, or is it really a reaction rebellion? Or a combination, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So with all of that, there's so much. It's a leap with, you know, to current time. But how? And you can see certainly some of your patterns. How, you know, they did continue into your your earning capacity. You know, and in following in your father's footsteps of being in real estate, that he was doing that at that time. Yeah was pretty incredible um, and that that was passed down to you and so high earning was you know that was all so you you stepped into all of that um, and then got stuck in some patterns and and how how have you stepped into or how are you cultivating more and more enoughness Ooh, you know I am very focused on I'm very focused on bringing 100% of myself to the world in every context I'm in it and on creating what I feel moved to create in the world and in the workplace um, without 
holding back or repressing it. And that tends to lead to big things. <laughs> um, that tends to lead to things like raising your hand and showing up to do jobs that other people might not think that you're qualified to do. It tends to look like speaking out in, you know, in the boardroom. In my last job, for example, you know, I was consulting um, for a bunch of tech companies on marketing. I get a call from my fitness pal, which was at the time the biggest fitness app in the world, had 45 million users. Um, and they call me and they're basically like, we don't have a marketing team and our investors are telling us that we probably need one. Would you consult with us and help us understand, like think through that question. Do we need a marketing team? And if so, what should they do? And so I show up like in the valley where everybody is, you know, guys wearing jeans and t-shirts and I show up as a black chick with long braids wearing church lady dresses and tell them my, my very clear, probably somewhat controversial opinions about whether they need a marketing team, what it should look like, what it should be accountable for, what kinds of officers they should hire for the rest of the company, how to articulate and be bold about vision and mission, um, how to be unfettered in the way they talk, they express their love and deep concern and care for their customers, which is not necessarily like a way that many companies operate in Silicon Valley. But I could see that in those people. And, you know, so I did my 90-day consulting gig, and at the end, the CEO was like, you have, you have to come work here. And I was like, well, you know, I'm making so much money consulting, and I have total freedom over my time. I'll, I'll just continue to help them and consult with them, but I'm not taking this job. And six months in a row, he made that job offer. And six months in a row, I said no, and I continued to hire the whole rest of their marketing team and spin it up and start doing the work. And, and one day, I had a call with my dad, and I said, if they could pay me 50% of what I'm making right now consulting, I'll probably take this job. Okay. And that same day, they made that, off, that exact number offer. Um, the CEO told me that day, I'm paying you more than I pay myself. Um, and so I took the job and I took equity in the company and for two years we had this like blissful experience of co-creating like this amazing thing together and took the company from 45 million to 100 plus million customers and the business was acquired for almost a half billion dollars and I, you know, did very well on that financially, um, because of the equity that I owned in the business, um, so I've learned to just like show up and do what I do and say what I feel and align my behavior and my actions and my words and move forward based on what, you know, only work with people that have similar values to mine and really operate pretty purely on those kinds of principles. And it has created more abundance than I ever could have, you know, planned to create. So let me ask you, that's all incredible and does not surprise me. And what does it look like now in your personal bookkeeping? Who's doing it? How much say do you have? Are you tracking your spending? Are you watching it? Are you directing it? Tell me more about that 
so very concrete part Let's of your see. financial world. I I would not say that I like carefully track my spending. I do pay attention to I know what I spend though. Um on a monthly I'm basis, very, you meaning you know on average like what's going on monthly yeah. or okay. Yeah. Um and I look at it. <laughs> I look at it in a way that I didn't mm-hmm. used to because <laughs> I think I, I had dread about it before, whereas now yeah. I like there is, you know, there is plenty, but also I don't spend as much as I did before because I think I, it's a little bit like food. When you start eating really nourishing food, you just don't have to eat as much. Um, I kind of have relatively fixed Expenses and they're just not, they're well, well under what I bring in. Okay. Um, I also, you know, I also have, let's see, I'm trying to think how I can be more concrete about this. I don't have as much of a regular, like, once a week practice I sit down and do that kind of a thing. I just, like, pay attention to it through the month. Um and I know what comes in and what goes out, especially right now. I'm in this period of time where I'm no longer, you know, normally I'm a consultant, so I do have, you know, projects. I have people that I have to pay out every month. I have, you know, clients that may be for three months or six months or a year. Right now I am actually on a salary as an entrepreneur in residence, so my expenses and my income are relatively static. Um, the one thing that's kind of extraordinary is I do, you know, I do travel some, but almost all of my travel is either paid for by a client or a partner or deductible. Um, and it's just not that things don't change that much for me. I also don't have kids at home anymore. <laughs> so I, that's the, the I, other big. But you have a you have a grandbaby, so there's going to be that maybe. <laughs> yeah, that is has only been the case for a week. So I haven't had a lot right. of spending on that yet. But yeah. So, yeah, where do you splurge and where do you where would you never spend money? Um where do I splurge? I basically do what I want to do. Um so where I splurge, I guess I would say is some with travel. Um, I definitely, I spend more per item on items of clothing than I used to buy a lot. Um, but I don't buy things as frequently and my cost per wear of things is actually, I think, extremely low. Okay. Um, so I just don't buy things if I don't love them. That's what I would say okay. in terms of, there's no thing that I would say I never would buy. Um, if I see jewelry I like and love, I will buy it. I do not, but I have to love it because I've had enough seasons of going through the closet and pulling out a bunch of things that still have tags on them that I haven't ever worn or and really don't envision wearing. Um, I've been through that path a lot, <laughs> so... Um, I just don't buy a whole lot that I don't love. Got it. Got it. Um, I do travel a lot. I spend on that. Um, And, you know, I do, I actually eat out a lot. So I eat most of my dinners out. Mm -hmm. Um, I also spend a lot on fitness probably compared to other people. (laughs) Um, So I probably 
spend in the four to a normal month for me on fitness expenses is four hundred dollars a month. So that's um, the trainer, it, yeah. That's what the that is like un, that is mostly passes at studios. So like okay. I usually okay. teach one unlimited pass somewhere, and then I will I will take any fitness class anytime. I will never stop myself from spending on fitness. Um, and I do, when I travel, I almost always try to take a, a different class at a different studio every day when I'm gone. Fun. Fun. Um, so that is okay. the thing, yeah, that I spend a lot on. So things that you love, fitness and food, dining out. Okay. Yeah. So I have one last question, and it's it's kind of a big one. Um, but it's about being married. Yes. And doing money, being married, and then getting a divorce and was the divorce related to money at all and the timing of it we know was coinciding with a huge crash in many 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 ways was that all related and then you were single mom and how was money during that time and now you're partnered again so I know this is a huge the whole interview could have been about this (laughs) it could Um, have yeah so can you share a little bit about what you learned that wasn't working early on about doing money in partnership and relationships and what you've changed and now how you're doing it differently? Yes. yes. I learned several things. What I learned was I learned that this universe is abundant in, in finance and also in competent, capable men and people. I realized that that was not a belief system that I had before. Um, and I think in my desire to avoid being, to avoid feeling like I was being controlled or nitpicked around money, mm-hmm. um, I attracted in uh, two husbands, actually, who were more, who were not, um, let's see, to, to whom the fact that I was a very willing, um, abundant, capable breadwinner was very, that was very attractive to them. Okay. And so when... Can I ask you one question, things? though? Hold on one sec, sure. really quick. When did you make that decision, and how did that come to be that you said, I'm not going to be controlled by money, and some men, right, um, yeah. Who who make a lot of money? You have a lot of money. Early and you, from childhood, that is one of you my. You said it's power. Legacies. Okay, so that was something. My you, yeah. Yeah. For my whole my I, I realized that my grandmother had always taught me. She's a lovely woman, but she had taught me. She had had some bad experiences with men, and she had taught me like never to have children you can't personally support. Okay. Financially, and okay. so I ended up like marrying people who had real, you know emotional and other wounds around finance and we we I, we both stepped into this huge long, probably ancient entanglement emotionally around not wanting to be controlled so I'll just earn all the money great you just earn all the money but then when things got really really real in the real estate market I had no support I literally, like my husband did not work during that period of time, even though we really, really needed him to. So I did not, I would not say, um, I would not say the divorce, that that divorce was about money. I would say that financial issues were very much part, they were very much representative of the dysfunction. They were symptomatic of the power dysfunction and weird dynamics that we had 
just we had just an unhealthy basis. Um, so fortunately or unfortunately, so just, you know, in transparency, I always had taken pains to own my home myself, even while I was married, like literally to the point where I had had my husband quit claim off of the deed because I just thought that was the right thing to do. And he wasn't, I didn't feel that at the time that he was contributing to the home. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that meant that that and a bunch of other parts of the way uh, my marriage uh, dissolved meant that I didn't have some of the financial issues I see other women who are strong, you know, earners. I didn't have some of those issues. My husband, at the time, my second husband, was very gracious and graceful in um, not asking me to, you know, pay him alimony or spousal support, which under the law of California, I probably, you know, that is not a bizarre thing to happen. Um, I, because I owned the home outright and he had quit cleaned off, I, I was able to keep my home. Um, so the divorce itself was not actually financially traumatic, and that is a real blessing because I see a lot of people having a hard time with that. Yeah. Um, let's see. What is different in my relationship now is that, I mean, we're just both grown up. I think, I think in my previous marriages, I was very young. I was 16 the first time I got married. I was 22 or 23 the second time I got married. Um, I think I just was not, you know, I was actually still emotionally <laughs> a child in yeah. some ways. I think now, you know, my partner is, you know, definitely a grown, we say grown and sexy, we don't say older. <laughs> um, but we're both grown ups. We've both done a lot of um, spiritual, emotional, psychological work. Um, we've kind of since day one just been very um, transparent about everything. And so, like, I, I just to reiterate, I really do see fine, the way you treat finances as just kind of the way you do. There are special money triggers that people have <laughs> and emotional wounds that people have. But, like, we really have both seen the the world as abundant financially. We also, you know, we both own our own homes. We both have done relatively well for ourselves financially. We also are not frivolous and, you know, think about and talk about financial matters with each other, um, even though we're not married and we don't live in the same home. Um, uh, it's, it is much more partnership. Like we're, our conversations about everything from like when we take trips and it's not tit for tat. It's not, you know, we have to split this 50-50 and do calculators. It just feels right and it is transparent and it's an easy subject to talk about like everything else between us. Mm. Um, we do think a lot and talk about a lot about, you know, our career decisions through some the lens of making a living in finance, but more with the belief system that that will sort itself out essentially because we of where we're both at in our careers. 
and more through the lens of like what do we want to create in this world while we're here and the fun and joy of creating it. Um, so, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's very different and there's not like a real power. It's actually finance tends to be one more way that we each enjoy um, one more venue for each of us to enjoy sort of pouring love into the other versus a power struggle. Okay. So you and I share this, and it's different, but, you know, I also very early on did not like being controlled or felt as though I was being controlled, felt as though there's a lot of power over me from my father, and never wanted that, you know, so last Chicago, I'm not going to marry a man in Chicago, you know, um, <laughs> who makes a lot of money, and what, you know, that just, I'm going to choose a different path, and it took me years, I didn't get married until 35 years old, and then I wanted someone yeah. who was more of a partner, someone that we could grow together, and learn how to do all of this together, you know, and share everything, um, so it sounds like, you came to a similar decision and it kind of worked itself out differently because you got married so young. If I got married that young, I probably would have chosen some, you know, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I would have probably chosen. Yeah, you make interesting choices. (laughs) You make interesting choices because we aren't emotionally (laughs) mature, right, as you were saying. So I love that at this point in your life that you have chosen and found someone that. Um, it's it's just a partnership all around on every level. It is, and our styles yeah. are similar. I think mm-hmm. around finance, that's actually relatively important. Like, mm. I think that, you know, there are people who need to have, like, a really, like, every week we sit down and do this and do this and do this. And he's a little more like that than me. Like, he definitely has a set time of the week that he, like, pays bills and that kind of thing. Um, but, like, the ability... I, I need a little less structure, um, right. mm-hmm. and he's and that's like oak, okay, but it all gets handled and tended like regularly, and that, you know, the the ability for one, for for you to share that stylistic approach, I think is really important. I do think otherwise, it's really hard for people who have really extremely different styles yeah. to make that work around finance. Yeah. Well, it's pretty common. It's really, really common, right? Especially if you yeah. get married young. Yeah. My parents. Like, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's really common. I mean, polarizing is, is, yes. is very, very, very common. Yes. Tara, I want to thank you so much. I know there's so much more to share about your money story. It is always such an honor to hear these money stories. And I would love to know if there's anything else that you feel you would want to share so that this money memoir felt complete um, for now. Is there anything else that feels important for you to share? Um, I do think, like, I think it's very important that people be gentle and easy with themselves as they are learning and developing practices that work for them. Um, I think I've seen in my work a lot that you know, when when someone like you offers such a beautiful approach and system and people see the value of that and want it, it can be really hard on their on their present as, mm-hmm. as they're trying to move into the future or, you know, ex- do move into the expansion that is being offered to them. And I just, like, have learned to be 
pretty gentle and easy with myself as I move into these expansive times practices and also to personalize them for what works for me. Like, um, and that has just been like in general set me up for to enjoy my life and be more successful at integrating the practices that are important to me, including like a conscious approach to finance. Mm. Um, so that I will offer that. So add doses of gentleness, ease. Yeah. Really fine tune it so that it works for you, and and don't feel you need to sculpt it or you know box it into someone else's approach. Really make it your own with gentle yeah. gentleness. Yeah. Beautiful. Tara, thank you so much. So good to connect with you after all these years. It feels like how did 10 years, a decade in a flash. (laughs) You are incredibly inspiring. And congratulations on all of it. And congratulations on being the sexiest. (laughs) Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.